Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. The COVID pandemic continues. What does this mean for professional political operatives? Timeline changes, tactic changes, everything changes. That's Megan Sara, political consultant, founder of 270 Strategies. Ansara is a young veteran of Democratic Party political campaigns. She worked her first one shortly after graduating college in 2001. She knows as much as any political operative about how this year's political campaign season is different, starting with time. I worked in headquarters on the 2012 Obama campaign and then was the battleground states director in 2016 for the Clinton campaign. And in particular, contrasting those two experiences taught me some very hard lessons around how precious time is, how valuable it is, and how hard it is uh, when you're not an incumbent and you don't have the benefit of time. So in 2016, we lost several of the battleground states by very, very close margins. Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, those three states we lost by less than 80,000 votes. You know, these are very, very small margins. And that's when organizing can really make a difference. On the ground, people to people contact. When I say on the ground, I mean that figuratively as well as literally. But it only really works if you have people who look like the electorate, who are from the community, and also have the time to build the skills and relationships required to be successful at organizing. So here we are in the middle of the summer of 2020. If COVID hadn't struck, the Democrats would have already held their convention and entered the key time period for organizing because the Democratic electorate, two of whose core constituencies are African-Americans and young people, tend to be less regular voters. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Post-convention, you're starting to do a lot more voter identification work. So actually talking directly to voters, seeing where they are in terms of who's with you, who's against you, who's in the middle and you know needs more of a persuasion conversation versus who's a first time voter and needs support in getting out to vote, more of a mobilization focus. You know, we saw a decline, actually the first decline in black voting in 2016, which was a very critical component of our loss in 16, um, particularly in states like Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania. So we have to do more to support them in voting and also, frankly, combat voter suppression efforts, which tend to target voters of color, which is a key demographic for us, and younger voters. So not only do they not yet have the, the habit of regular voting, there's also intentional efforts to make it harder, if not impossible, for them to vote. Ansara decided not to work on a presidential campaign this cycle. Instead, last year, in partnership with the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, she set up Organizing Corps to recruit and train a young collection of grassroots organizers, a thousand in all, to build up and get out the vote in 2020. So we know organizing works and can make the difference, particularly in close elections, but we haven't historically as a party invested in recruiting people who are best positioned to do that work and to training them so that they're ultimately um, set up for success. And this was particularly acute for me in 2016, where we ran the same size program as we did in 2012, but in a third of the time. And they didn't have time to develop the skills that they ultimately needed. So Organizing Core 2020 really sought to address that by 
starting much earlier, basically running in parallel with the primary and the presidential primary through the DNC and state parties, we um, focused on rising college seniors for the most part who are from the community, looked like the electorate, so very diverse, much more diverse than we typically see on campaign staff. And we actually paid them to get trained. So in the summer of 2019, we had 300 core members who you know, were hired in their home states in eight kind of pivotal battleground states that we know were gonna be important in terms of achieving 270 electoral votes. And we paid them, paid them to get trained. They had an intensive week of training and then seven weeks in the field. They were actually registering voters. They were working on special elections. They were you know, doing that party building that's so important and in the meantime having a coach kind of walk them through the skill building process we did two more waves of that we did boot camps in the winter and then a large wave during the spring that ultimately delivered a thousand field organizers 85 percent of whom are from the community where they're going to be organizing so not only are they better prepared they ha already have that local credibility that's so important in organizing and they have the skills that are required you can imagine that we were in the middle of our second wave when the pandemic hit. So we were actually running these boot camps on college campuses while the college campuses were shutting down. So we had to pivot during our second training wave to being virtual. And we'd always trained organizers on traditional field voter contact tactics, canvassing, you know, going door to door, phone calling, things like that, but also digital organizing, because even without a pandemic, that's that's a primary way that people are um, reaching people and engaging people. We put the program, we translated it 100% online and you know, delved even more deeply into the virtual organizing techniques. And arguably, you know, I would say that the core members are even better prepared because of this pandemic, because they've had more time and more support in terms of developing skills. And they also bring that local credibility that I think is really important in such a crazy, chaotic, confusing, scary time like these, you tend to go to the people that you trust and the people that you know. And you know, working with a campaign staffer who's from your community, who looks like you, who knows the geography, it's gonna be much more impactful than having someone you know, sort of dropped in at the last minute, which tends to be kind of how we've staffed campaigns in the past. So. Some folks have asked me if organizing still matters in this context, and, and I would argue it matters even more. The way in which you talk to voters changes, right? It's much more virtual, but the value of a relationship, the importance of it doesn't change. I think these organizing core members are best positioned to do that. So how do you build personal contacts in the middle of a pandemic? Can you use traditional methods like knocking on someone's door? It's a great question. So some people have been knocking on doors. In most places, they've not. And where they have been, you know, I think folks are experimenting with like texting someone right outside their door, asking if they can come on their porch, being socially distant, wearing a mask, kind of all that protocol. Um, so I think there are ways in which to have those conversations, but for the most part, they're not happening because they're not considered safe either for the campaign staffer, the volunteer, or you know the voter that you're having conversations with. So a lot more of this is happening virtually, and this is where you know, you're having people doing peer-to-peer -peer texting, which is relational texting. It's an actual back and forth over text. 
they're creating virtual house meetings, you know, so instead of being in a living room making your pitch, you know, you have a Zoom call and you're having that conversation and then organizing through social media as well. So working on existing platforms uh, like a Facebook and reaching out to their friends and engaging them that way. And there's some new tools to support them in doing that. The goal stays the same, which is you want to get new voters, you know, registered and voting. And then you want to be talking to people who are either undecided or just, you know, on the fence to have a persuasion conversation. But the tools that you're using are definitely different. Then there is educating voters about voting by mail, not something most people are familiar with. Vote by mail is complicated. It's really important, but it needs to be done right. And there's a lot of components that go into that. So, you know, we're definitely seeing record numbers of vote by mail requests, you know, ballot requests coming in in battleground states. But, you know, a lot of these states are transitioning to vote by mail where they really never had vote by mail before. Several of the battleground states that are really key this cycle do have more of a practice of voting by mail, like a Florida, like an Arizona. So they have the infrastructure in place. This is going to be less of an issue, less of a change for them. But other really critical states, that's not the case. So Pennsylvania historically has been very, very difficult to vote by mail. They haven't had early voting. It's an election day state. That's a massive state that's absolutely pivotal. And, you know, 4% of people voted by mail in Pennsylvania in 2018. Wisconsin was tipping point the last time, could absolutely be tipping point again. And in 2018, they voted 6% by mail. It's those states, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, Michigan, where, you know, you're going to see many more of the challenges. So it's just a huge habit shift. Many people do not trust that their ballot is going to be counted. And in fact, ballots that are sent by mail do have a higher rejection rate because there's more steps, right? And it and likely it's unfamiliar. You sometimes have to seal the inner envelope. You have to have these magic signatures, right? There's um, sort of more places where it can be rejected. And so having a sensible process for reviewing those is really important. And then you add in all the complicating factors of, you know, the fact that Trump is highly politicizing it, which is really problematic. Um, he votes by mail, so he clearly can't have that much of a problem with it, but he's making it a partisan thing. Not to mention the infrastructure not being there. States not having the systems in place to distribute and send ballots in a timely way, the Postal Service being able to process them. And that's where things like, you know, does the ballot need to be postmarked by election day or does it need to be received by election day? That rule changes state by state. And so, you know, all of that is incredibly complicating. And at the same time, the more we talk about it, the more potentially suppressive it can be in the sense of discouraging people or undermining a sense of confidence. So, you know, there's a balancing act here in the sense of how do we um, have an appropriate level of outrage and urgency to get what we need, whether it's laws changed or resources or just protection of things like the Postal Service uh, without further contributing to a lack of confidence that could lead to fewer people voting. I wondered what Megan Sara saw as the key factors that will shape the home straight of the campaign. Trump was 
a lot of people didn't take him as a serious threat in 16. And it also was a, you know, he was a symbol of something. But, you know, there are a lot of people who are saying, you know, both there's no way he's going to win or also, you know, Bark is worth than his bite, right? And I think folks that really underestimated just the really profound damage that he was going to do. And, and that's all real now, not to mention the rhetoric that he continues to use um, and that his people continue to use. And I think that definitely for women, you know, it's just crossed a line and it has unleashed a sense of action and activism and whether that's volunteering or getting engaged politically, running for office, we continue to see enthusiasm from women, I would say, you know, from all backgrounds, but we know in terms of his pathway to victories, suburban women are a critical constituency. And he's caught between a rock and a hard place in the sense of he's, he needs to continue to keep his base with him, which is, you know, and so he goes hard on these very divisive polarizing issues, the race baiting, the you know incredibly discriminatory rhetoric to keep his base with him but that's going to further alienate him from kind of the suburban vote and particularly suburban women who just feel like that is just beyond the pale it's crossed the line and, and wrong that's the challenge for him and i don't know how he threads that needle based on his track record and and just what he's actually done now versus the promise you know of what he was going to do in 16. Ansara pointed to two other factors that will shape the outcome on election day. So young people, which is a critical constituency, there's a sense of this just can't happen. Uh, it was really interesting for me to talk to current college graduates, so many of them seeing politics as a way to serve. Whereas like when I graduated from college 20 years ago, politics was seen as kind of dirty, right? And the way to make a difference was to, you know, kind of quote unquote, work outside of the system. Um, and so I think more and more young people are realizing that there actually is no working outside the system. And, you know, if you're not voting, if you're not in the room, if you're not running, your, your needs aren't going to be protected. And so, you know, I think the enthusiasm there and then obviously with a much overdue reckoning with the black community, you know, and, and racism, I think you're seeing an energy and engagement from the black community, which is absolutely critical. And, you know, they played a decisive role in Biden winning the nomination. And, you know, my hope is that they'll continue to play a decisive role come November as well. So, main constituencies motivated, polls trending in the Democrats' favor. Does Megan Sara predict victory for the Biden-Harris ticket and all the way down the ballot? I don't think you can be the battleground states director for the Clinton campaign and not be chastened when it comes to polling and election predictions. Uh, I just don't think that's possible. So I, I, I tell everyone I'm out of the election prediction business. You know, I think that Biden is in a strong position. Do I think it's as strong as the polls tell us? That's where I do have some skepticism. You know, polling's extremely difficult and getting harder. You know, this is completely uncharted territory and a critical element of polling is to get an accurate and representative sample size. We've never seen in my lifetime voting during, you know, a worldwide pandemic. So predicting who's actually going to vote is extremely challenging. And that's, you know, in order for the polls to be accurate, that that has to be there. I also think that people tend to not always be honest about their support for Trump. I definitely think that that was a factor in, in 2016. And I think will continue to be a factor. But that being said, 
I think that Biden is in a strong position. I think the pickup of Kamala Harris further strengthens his, his position. Polls measure a moment in time, and they're also m measurements of support. And support doesn't actually determine a race. Turnout does. And for all the reasons we were just talking about, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to vote this cycle. And based on the pandemic, they're going to be sick or taking care of sick uh, family members, you know, and voter suppression is a lot more aggressive and in more places. So, you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if he has huge amounts of support if ultimately our people don't come out and vote. And so that's why I still remain optimistic, hopeful, but concerned because we, our people have to be able to vote and there's a lot of barriers that are in, the, in place for that that are going to have to be overcome. So am I encouraged? Absolutely. Do I think that this is a cakewalk? Absolutely not. Forewarned is forearmed. If you are an American, now is the time to start planning how you will protect your vote and make sure it is counted. That's the editorial. And now the commercial. There's a veritable history and sound of the Trump era at the FRDH website, www.goldfarbpod.com. Please visit, and while you're there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks to Meg Ansaro for making time to speak with me, and thanks to you for listening.